Welcome to the Be Bold or Be Forgotten podcast. My name is Brian Brown. Have you ever wondered why some people's stories are told for generations after they've passed, yet most are forgotten within just a few short years? Have you ever put much thought into which category you'll end up in? What we're going to do is go behind the scenes and let anybody who wants to watch me fight. Fight to become a lineage maker for my family while my chips are down and the odds are against me. Maybe in that process, you'll decide that you want to become a lineage maker too. For most of my life, I have felt that people really wouldn't care much about what I had to say. So I tended not to say much. And a lot of that belief came from a reoccurring experience back in third grade, uh, believe it or not. We had these weekend share times where people would sit down in a circle and share about their weekend. And I don't remember what my classmates shared, but all I remember was uh, thinking, who cares? Um, I thought it was the dumbest thing because they were sharing stories that were all about them, what they did. It was all about how great their weekend was, you know, all the fun things that they did. So I figured that people would feel the same way about the stuff that I might share. So I kept it to myself. It's kind of funny how the meaning that we give experiences can have so much impact on how we behave decades later, you know, for better or for worse. So Here's the Brian Brown story. I'll be sharing it at the risk of you thinking, who cares afterwards? But, you know, for the people who might want to know who I really am, here goes something. My name is Brian Jefford Brown. Uh, I was born in 1985 in Wyoming on the Wind River Indian Reservation. And shortly thereafter, we moved to uh, Parker, Colorado for my dad's first job. And the first memory for me was um, going to sleep in my best friend Luke's pull-out bed drawer uh, when my parents were going over to the hospital and my mom was about to give birth uh, to my younger brother, Mark. And I just turned three years old, which is, you know, it's kind of weird because I don't remember much else until I was five years old. And, you know, my first memory of money was when I was five. Um, I vividly recall talking to my dad in the driveway asking him if we could get a little Caesar's pizza that night for five bucks. And he said something that, you know, I haven't forgotten till this day. He said, I'm sorry, son, but we can't afford it. And that experience drove me from a young age to figure out this money game. And I'm very grateful for that experience. Um, you know, when I was about seven years old, I fell in love with Michael Jordan. Uh, I was watching the the Chicago Bulls defeat the Phoenix Suns in Game 6 of the 1993 NBA Finals. And uh, my bedroom went on to be covered with MJ posters from wall to wall, uh, just like probably other millions of kids. And, you know, I wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to fly like Mike, too. And by the end of my high school career, I did have a 41-inch vertical leap and could hit my head on the backboard. Um, A lot of people don't believe that unless they see the video, which I get. Um, I was also a big Davy Crockett fan. And if you don't know who that is, look up the Alamo. 
And I was so much so a fan that I wore a Davy Crockett Frontiersman outfit that my grandma made me uh, every day during the first grade. I'm talking about like every day. I either had very low levels of awareness um, that it wasn't cool to wear the same clothes every single day, or I just didn't care because I love the outfit so much. I'm not sure which it was, but I am sure I was upset that they wouldn't let me sport my coonskin cap in school. Uh, so I made sure that I put that on when I was wandering around my backyard with my replica old Betsy rifle. Um, I know some of you are saying pictures or it didn't happen. Let me see what I can find. All right. Um, the other country side of me came in the form of playing the banjo when I was probably seven years old. I saw my dad playing it and I wanted to play it too. Uh, shortly thereafter, I could play dueling banjos. If you ever heard of the movie called uh, Deliverance, that's the one. And my dad literally taught me to play the banjo string by string. Uh, I never learned how to read music uh, for the banjo or anything like that. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, I've always been the type to get obsessive about learning new things in a short period of time, if it was at all possible, um, even if I had to learn it in a very unconventional way. You know, one of the most painful memories for me growing up was when I found out that my middle school best friend had shot himself in the head. Um, you know, I'd met Norman in elementary school, and I remember seeing him for the first time. He was bouncing up and down in line, walking down the elementary school hall. And, you know, he just had a, a, a contagious energy about him. He was just full of soul. And we spent a lot of time together. So, you know, when I found out that he had he had committed suicide, um, I felt really guilty because I felt like I should have known that he was having issues um, as his friend. And, you know, I still think about him to this day. I went over to his... Uh, his gravesite, um, not all that long ago. Um, tough thing to experience as a middle schooler, for sure. Um, on a um, maybe somewhat lighter note, um, you know, all I ever wanted to do growing up was play basketball and become an NBA player. And not only was I extremely competitive, but I had I had quite the temper when I was uh, younger. In primary school, I would get in trouble for yelling at these other eight-year-olds. I would yell in their faces. I would say, out of the Bronx crowd, after I'd grab a rebound. And the funny part is, it was years later that I would realize that I had completely misinterpreted a line from a Michael Jordan documentary when he was describing his parents not letting him hang out with the wrong crowd. Um, so yeah, I, I got in trouble for that a lot. And I, even though I didn't typically get in trouble and I didn't like getting in trouble, I was a freak about keeping stats, you know, as early as third grade, um, I would go home after our youth basketball games and I would log the stats into my family's desktop computer as best as I could remember them. And I also had my mom video record the game so that I could go back and watch the film. And I would get upset um, if her camera work was not perfect. I would also get really mad when I missed too many shots in a row. You know, eventually I asked my dad to teach me how to shoot above my head, starting in fifth grade. And all the other kids were still shooting from their hip at that point, and they so they could shoot three-pointers. I could barely shoot a free throw. And I spent a ton of time working on that shot. For example, even when it was snowing outside, I would go out, shovel the driveway, fill up a five-gallon bucket of hot water so I could warm up my hands in between, you know, shooting and, and the reps that I was doing. So by the time that ninth grade came around, 
most of my peers were still shooting from their hip and they were just starting to make that challenging transition of their shot that I had made four years earlier. And by that point, I could shoot three pointers above my head like an older player. So it gave me an edge that I needed. And, you know, for whatever reason, I've always been willing to go backwards and suck for a while before most everybody else does in order to eventually get more long-term progress and get bigger long-term results. Um, sophomore year in high school, I shaved my head so that girls would think that I was ugly and wouldn't like me. Um, although I was socially awkward enough, so that probably wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. Um, but I was so focused on becoming the best basketball player that I could be. I wanted to eliminate any unnecessary distractions as best as I could. I was the first one of my friends to be able to drive. I rocked a 1987 Volvo station wagon. Yes, I know. And nearly every day that year, I picked up my friends, Jeremy, TC, and Nate, uh, on the way to Chaparral High School. Nate let us borrow four 12-inch subs uh, from his mom and dad that we put in the, the very back of this uh, station wagon. And we blared Tupac's All Eyes on Me and uh, anything else you could think of. I'm pretty sure that those subs are partially responsible for the hard hearing that I have in my left ear. You should probably know that handling conflict was not my strong point back in the day. I remember one day specifically that I was supposed to take uh, this girl out on a date and I no-showed because I didn't know how to say no in the first place. So I get a call from one of our mutual friends who called me out for no-showing and she said, you just can't do that to people. Do you know how long it took her to get ready? I still remember where I was driving when I got that phone call and it taught me the value of having friends who are going to call you out on your BS and call you out on following through on what you said you would do. So thank you for that, Brittany Russo. What else about me? Um, I hate politics. Going into my junior year of high school, I tried out for a club basketball team and I played really, really well. And then when the teams came out, I wasn't on the list. So I knew that I should have been on it and I was I was pissed because I had also gone to the tryouts instead of going to the first and last Michael Jordan game that I'd ever have the chance to go to. I missed it. So what did I do? I ended up finding Coach Tree from a Google search and it turns out that he didn't even have tryouts for his team. He just kept anyone who was crazy enough to stick around after his practices. And we did some very unconventional things uh, on that team. I remember we were going to a tournament in Louisville, Kentucky. And by the way, it's Louisville. For those of you guys who aren't from there, I had, had my friends teach me. Um, but anyways, before our actual games, he decides to take us straight into the hood. And we show up to some random gym. We walk in and there's a sign with rules on it. It says, no guns and no throwing up gang signs. So here I am, a white boy from Parker, Colorado, getting ready to hoop. I'm way out of my element, but I played really well. And I remember having a, a big time block shot that, that had the crowd ooing and aahing. And that taught me that people will respect your craft no matter where you're from or what you look like if you put in those unseen hours. So back to hating politics, um, I try out for that same club team the year prior that had cut me. Um, this was following a, an all-conference junior season. 
and I walk into these tryouts knowing that I'm not going to play for them, and I intentionally do nothing the entire tryouts, and the list of the team comes out, I'm on it, which shouldn't have been the case at all based on the performance that I did or didn't give, and I never even called them back. Um, I just wanted them to know that they made a mistake that year prior. Maybe not the best way to go about it, but now you know that I've got that that part of me that wants people to understand what they missed on you know, passing me up. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But by the end of high school, I didn't have any D1 offers. Um, so I signed to play at a junior college in Northeastern Colorado. Uh, two weeks before I was getting ready to leave, I got a call from the University of Denver, uh, which is a small mid-major D1, and they offered me a full-ride scholarship. So I call Coach Tree, ask him what I should do. He tells me to take it. So that's what I do. And going into college, I remember that my parents gave me $600 for books, food, and clothes. And I probably should have used it for book, food, and clothes. But what I did was I decided to figure out how I could turn that $600 into more money. Um, I never wanted to sit behind a desk for 40 years and work for the man. So, you know, I was curious about how I could make money in untraditional ways. So I stumble across something called Google AdWords. I don't know if you remember those. And uh, apparently you can make money by, you know, people, you know, clicking these links. Well, I ended up putting $600, all 600 into making that work and making back exactly zero. I had no idea what I was doing and it costed me to do it all on my own. That was a big learning lesson to help me understand that it's important to find a mentor who can successfully guide you along a process that they've already been through. So I hated my freshman year. Uh, practices and conditioning were intense, to say the least. I played behind a couple seniors, one Rodney Billups, who's uh, Chauncey Billups' younger brother. The other guy's name is Eric Benzel. And uh, he was a top 10 three-point shooter in all of Division One college basketball. So, you know, our coach was big on defense. We would work on defense half of the practice, and then the starting five would work on offense the second half, which meant I played more defense. <laughs> and uh, most of our practices were f at 5 a.m. in the morning, by the way, and we would be walking into the gym while all the other students were walking back home from partying. And I remember one day at practice, we were doing a defensive drill, and we could not get a stop. And every time we didn't get a stop, we had to run a suicide um, a sprint for, for those of you guys that are not familiar with the term. And I'll never forget, we ran 23 suicides in a row that day. I'm, I'm surprised that nobody passed out. But, you know, it made us tougher and it made us realize that we're capable of more uh, than, than we thought we were. The only, I shouldn't say only, but the most memorable good thing about freshman year was meeting my wife, Sarah. And she'll tell you, this is her side of the story, that I was hanging out with one of her soccer friends, which for the record, I wasn't. But that's how we got introduced in Sturm Hall. I remember exactly where I was. And I thought she was beautiful, but I had already made up in my mind, maybe this was crazy, that I didn't want to date a beautiful girl because they were too high maintenance and too full of themselves. But I admittedly could not stop thinking about her and I only saw her once briefly after that. So what I did, this is when Facebook was brand new, was I sent her a message on Facebook to ask for her number. Uh, long story short, our first date was watching Finding Nemo in her dorm room. Ever since then, 
Uh, I've been doing my best with what I know to build her a life that she deserves. And that was nearly 15 years ago. So the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, um, I ended up getting another concussion, which happened to be my third in an 18-month time period. My grades dropped dramatically. Um, I was dizzy all the time. I couldn't focus. My heart rate was high. And after about a year of testing and evaluations, the doctors just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. They couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting better. So they recommended to the school not to let me play anymore because I was going to be a liability on the court, um, which was super tough. But interestingly enough, I went to see a chiropractor shortly uh, after they told me I couldn't play. And I was back to nearly 100% after just two adjustments. Kind of crazy. Um, so my basketball career ending was crushing in many ways, but it gave me the opportunity to get into coaching. Uh, I loved being able to coach, work with kids, share my knowledge, you know, the knowledge that I wish I would have had when I was their age. Um, you know, part of me is fueled by the regret of what could have been. And that ultimately led to me starting the nonprofit organization years later, which is now called the What If Foundation. And if you're not familiar, our mission is to give young student athletes the knowledge, the resources, and the opportunities to become the best version of themselves, both on and off the court. Now, a month before going into our senior year, Sarah hands me this magazine that she had gotten from a uh, coworker at her summer internship. It was a 67-year-old lady named Judy, and she told Sarah that she could travel and make money on a part-time basis. You know, me, of course, I was immediately intrigued because I didn't want a traditional nine-to-five, and it was just earlier that summer that we were talking about it, that, you know, this is probably going to be the last time that we get to go on a summer vacation of any kind because we're going to have to get jobs and we're not going to be able to get the time off of work when we want it and all these other things. So I watched the DVD that's in the magazine and I see there's people having fun, making money. I saw that you could build a passive residual income that would come in month after month for work that you put forward in the past. Never heard of anything like that. And soon after that, um, I hear about this guy who had built a similar type of business successfully. And, and this guy, he likes to play golf. So because of the freedom that he had from successfully building the business, he would literally pick a place on the globe where it had a nice golf course and it was 72 degrees. Then after he got bored or the weather changed, he would pick another spot on the map where it was 72 degrees and go play golf there. Now, I didn't play golf. But I wanted the ability to make decisions solely based on the weather, uh, what the weather was like, if I wanted to. You feel me? And, you know, really all I could think about was building the business so I wouldn't have to get a job and go into a job every single day. So at the age of 22 and 21, we decided to get started in network marketing, uh, even though we had no experience in business, marketing, team building, speaking, any of that. But we did see that we would have access to people who had a vested interest in our success, unlike the, uh, the Google AdWords failure that had happened three years prior. So that was important to us. Early on, uh, Sarah and I made a decision that we were going to make a lot of sacrifices in order to build the business on a very part-time basis. You know, we were taught that if you use your wallet to fill up your mind, your mind will then fill up your wallet. So we decided to give up a whole bunch of things like going out to eat, birthday presents, Christmas presents, buying new clothes, so on and so forth. One of those investments, uh, an investment in ourselves, was going to leadership training events. So 
We would pack people into a hotel room. We would eat peanut butter and jellies and ramen in order to make it work. And I remember one time we had 15 people in one hotel room. This was in the, uh, the Rio in Las Vegas. And it was so packed that we even had one person who slept in the bathtub. So looking back, some of the stuff that we did was crazy. But we believed that if we did today what others weren't willing to do, then we could live a life that others couldn't have. So for instance, when our peers were out partying, you could find us reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, when they were out watching Monday Night Football, we were doing business meetings. While they were living the college life and sleeping in, we were going to trainings on a Saturday morning. And, you know, by the way, in no way am I saying that the path that anybody else took was wrong. I'm just saying that we made the decision and we sacrificed a lot of fun in order to build a lifestyle that we could get excited about. However, despite putting in the effort and making those sacrifices, 18 months in, our check for the month was exactly zero dollars. And as you can imagine, we got a lot of resistance from our friends and family who came to the conclusion that we were wasting our time. And, you know, myself, I started to have some doubts. I'm a pretty confident person, but it wasn't, <laughs> we weren't seeing the results. So I wondered, you know, am I really the type of person who can make this business work? I mean, to give you some insight, I was the guy who would go to the bathroom three times in the same hour um, at the meeting so that I could take a break from being around people. I was not the people person. You get the picture here. And I just couldn't seem to get things moving at the time. Um, it was super frustrating. It was a super frustrating time to be in business, to say the least. Maybe I'll share more details of that story at another time and talk about what shifted. But long story short, things did change in a fairly short period of time. You know, we went from making no money and spending more than we were making to becoming financially free at the age of 24 years old. And by the way, I, I define financially free as having more passive income coming in when you're not working than what your monthly bills are. But, you know, soon after becoming financially free, we got featured in Success From Home magazine, which was sold at uh, bookstores nationwide. And, um, you know, things really started to take off. I remember one cold day in February, a few years later, um, Sarah and I were sitting at a kitchen table and she goes, Brian, it is freezing out we should go somewhere. And I said, that's a great idea. Like you know, all husbands should say, right? I said, uh, why don't you pull out your laptop and we'll look at some options. So we pull out the computer. Um, we're looking at Florida first and I say, you know, it looks all right, but it'd be kind of nice to go to an all-inclusive. So she pulls up Cancun. Nope, no Cancun. Thunderstorms in Cancun. So I say, okay, let's check out Cabo. Cabo, 78 degrees and sunny. 48 hours later, we're sitting on the tarmac at, at uh, Denver International Airport getting ready to depart to Cabo. We didn't have to ask for the time off work, check how much money was in our bank account. We just got to book it. And as we're getting ready to take off, it hit me. We're like the golf guy. We can now make decisions based on what the weather is like. I remember that trip because it was such a payoff for all the effort and the sacrifices that we put in. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we saw this business as something that is worth getting good at. So we put a lot of time and effort into it. 
um, in, in the traditional way of building that business, I would calculate that we put in or put on 300,000 miles on our car, uh, cars. We flew several hundred flights and we persevered through many challenges when other people decided to throw in the towel. Um, I should note that, and it would be a mistake for me to not mention that we have a lot of great people around us who helped us get there. It is certainly 100% been a team effort. But um, let me give a special shout out to the people who have been uh, um, there with us no matter what. Uh, Lorenzo Oribois, Byron Schrag, and Mr. Wayne Nugent. Thank you guys. Love you guys. And, you know, the ultimate goal was to be able to be full-time parents uh, when we eventually did decide to have kids. And because of the business, we were able to do just that. As a matter of fact, the first year of my son's life, I was able just to be there um, with him and Sarah, which was, and it was so important because Sarah suffered some pretty serious postpartum stuff. And um, our son, Riser, he was not the best sleeper. And during that time... I put virtually zero effort into the business and we still received a very healthy six-figure income. So at this point, you might be saying, well, what's the problem, Brian? Sounds like life is pretty great. Sounds like you might be considered to be a lineage maker. Why would your wife want to strangle you? Well, sure, we became net worth millionaires by the age of 32. Sure, we had a single year that we made over $600,000 without clocking into a W-2. Yes, I've trained and spoken to tens of thousands of people on four different continents. Sure, we went on over 30 legit vacations before the age of 30. And on top of that, we started a nonprofit that helps kids too. So what's the problem? Well, at the time of this recording, my wife is very, and I mean very, unhappy with me, as she should be, I will point out. See, I assured her that we would be living in a different home by now. We have sacrificed living a more luxurious life for the last 12 years uh, by investing about 70% of our income that we've ever earned, which is almost an unheard of percentage. We've lived way below our means. And I know what you might be thinking, more than 30 vacations before the age of 30, not on your parents' dollars, that's not exactly living below your means, my man. I get it. So let me disclose that the vast majority of those vacations were paid for by our company's Earn Vacations program. But yes, we have lived below our means. You know, if you came to our house, you would probably think that we had a household income of maybe 50 grand a year. And then once you sat on our ugly 25-year-old couches, you might readjust your estimate to 40 grand a year. I don't know. <laughs> but See, it's not so much that my wife doesn't like me simply because we aren't living in a different home. She's not high maintenance like that. She doesn't like me because I had the opportunity to buy her the home that she wanted, cash, but instead I put a significant amount of capital into speculative investments and borrowed even more additional capital that's tied up in many of those same projects. And she found out about those decisions that I made without her later on. Now, to be fair, I've done this in the past. She was cool with it because those investments turned out to be wins. But this time around, my decisions have reduced our net worth by an embarrassing 85%. And we now have a second kid on the way. 
Now, the, the old me would have heard this type of story and said, how in the hell do you pull that off? This guy is an irresponsible idiot. But now I know firsthand how to pull that off. I'll probably share those learning lessons in a, in a coming episode for, for maybe for your benefit to listen in on. I uh, saw a Viktor Frankl quote the other day, and it said, No man should judge unless he asked himself in absolute honesty whether in a similar situation he might not have done the same. So, I don't know. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't made some financial moves without your spouse or wife before. And uh, the only difference between your situation and mine is some zeros. I don't know. Or maybe that's just what I tell myself to uh, feel better. But without going into all the details about my wife's background and upbringing, it's important for you to know that what I did making those decisions uh, without her behind her back was probably one of the worst things that I could do to her because it made her question all kinds of things, including our marriage. I mean, she made those sacrifices with me in our 20s. And don't get me wrong, we had a great lifestyle of freedom while making many of those sacrifices, especially after the first few years of business. But now she kind of feels like it's all for nothing. And I think that any time that you don't feel like you're making the progress in life that you should, it's frustrating. So I, I get it. And the bottom line is I made her feel like she wasn't my top priority and that she couldn't trust me to deliver or can't trust me to deliver, which is tough to swallow as a man. By the way, the old me never would have shared that stuff because it's embarrassing. Because as a man, you're supposed to act like you've got it all together. As a leader, you know, you don't share that stuff because people might think of you differently, which, hey, maybe they do. And you'll learn in a coming episode that my plan is to turn my disadvantages into my advantages. And the advantage often lies in being willing to do what others simply aren't bold enough to do. Now, on top of that, on top of that, (laughs) our monthly cash flow is down pretty significantly. Part of that has to do with some crazy fraud that happened with our company that, that the company experienced a few years back. Part of that has to do with some failed launches, missed expectations. And part of that has to do with, you know, me taking the time, the money, and the focus to completely reinvent myself. So here's where I'm at. My wife is livid. Tensions are high. We've got a second kid on the way. We are not living in the house that I promised her we would have by now. The sacrifices that we made are seeming like they were all for nothing. And becoming a lineage maker is looking like a long shot. We are where we're at because of the decisions that I've made. It's nobody's fault but mine. Well, Brian, what are you going to do? What's your plan? If you'd care to know, well, that's what you're getting ready to find out. At the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves, if I don't win, who's going to lose? If I don't win, who is going to lose? Because here's the truth. If we don't do something significant with our lives, why does it even matter how long we live? And the way I see it, we've got two options tiptoe quietly to the grave of forgotten 
or be bold and become a lineage maker for our families. We're gonna go on a journey together to find out exactly what it takes to make sure when our great-grandkids get asked who their great-grandfather is, they won't fall victim to a frozen pen. Hey, it's Brian. If you find this podcast to be worth your time, I'd ask you to consider giving it a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If it's a complete waste of your time, give it one out of five stars. If it's at all relevant to you living a better life and you plan on listening further, consider giving it five stars. Thank you in advance. And when you're ready, we've got an exclusive Lineage Makers official Facebook group that I'll invite you to access after you rate the podcast. Head over to brianjbrown.us forward slash podcast for more resources and details. You can also connect with me on Instagram at brianjbrown. I look forward to seeing you on the other side and in the next episode.